Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're going to continue on in our new series in the Gospel of Luke. And this time, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will be looking at the Annunciation of John in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. A couple of reminders before we jump in. We wanted to remind you that if you sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race, with the link in the show notes, you will get a free download of a new ebook by Peter Lightheart on Pado Communion. Also, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is also linked in the show notes, for weekly theological and biblical videos. Right now, we are in the midst of a new series on work and Sabbath, and for the past year, we've worked through the furniture of creation in Genesis 1. With that, we hope that you enjoyed this discussion, and here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the Annunciation of John in the Gospel of Luke. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers, and we're continuing our discussion of the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. We are sticking around in the Gospels for another couple of months as we're anticipating Advent uh, beginning in a couple of weeks, and as we're uh, looking ahead to the Christmas season and the post-Christmas celebration, uh, we wanted to spend some time in the first two chapters of Luke, which lay out uh, the early stages of the, the life of uh, the life of Jesus and uh, circumstances of his birth and of his youth. Um, I mentioned in the first episode on this topic that we have a, a trajectory in Acts. I'm sorry, Luke and Acts, but it's a kind of opposing trajectory. In Luke, we have a movement, a constant movement toward the temple. That's true in the macro level. The whole the whole book both begins in the temple and ends in the temple. It begins in the temple with Zechariah. That's where the passage we'll be looking at today. But it culminates with the disciples of Jesus uh, back in the temple, awaiting the gift of the Spirit. They're in the Lord's house and rejoicing. So there's a movement toward Jerusalem in the book as a whole. Uh, the the opening section, chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, are uh, also culminate in Jerusalem in the temple, with Jesus in the temple speaking to the teachers. Uh, and then we have the long journey narrative that we talked about in the last episode, where Jesus is on his way toward Jerusalem for his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. And so you have the the, the movement from the Transfiguration, chapter 9, on through his arrival in Jerusalem in chapter 19, that whole section is outside of Jerusalem, but the uh, the thing that holds that section together is a journey toward Jerusalem. And so all the movement in, in the Gospel of Luke is toward Jerusalem and toward the temple. Uh, and in the book of Acts, you have the movement in the opposite direction. You start out with the disciples in Jerusalem, their early ministries in Jerusalem, and then with the death of Stephen, you have the scattering, the first scattering of disciples going out from Jerusalem into uh, Samaria, and then they go out as far as Antioch, and you have the beginning of a Gentile mission there. But then, of course, Acts culminates with Paul in Rome. So Luke is bringing the story into Jerusalem, back into Jerusalem, and then uh, Acts is continuing the story by sending the disciples out from Jerusalem out to the uttermost parts of the earth and to the capital city of Rome. Themes of the Spirit and prayer and women are found 
in the opening chapters of both Luke and Acts, we see in the story um, that we'll be discussing today with the Annunciation of the birth of John, um, in the story of Mary and Elizabeth, we see similar things in the events in the temple as Jesus is presented in the temple. And then in the book of Acts, many of these themes recur. It begins with the temple, the spirit, and emphasis also on women in certain ways. And those things, I think, call back to Old Testament passages, most particularly, I think, of First Samuel chapter 1 following, where we're introduced again to a particular character who's a righteous character, um, Elkanah and his wife, Hannah, and they're going up to the temple year by year. And then the barrenness of Hannah and her desire for a son. In a similar way to John the Baptist, um, there are themes of John the Baptist as a Nazarite, Samuel as a Nazarite. And I think this presents us again with a template against which we can understand what's taking place. So we've got that connection between Luke and Acts, and then also a connection between Luke and Acts and this Old Testament witness. And putting those things together, I think, gives us a framework to understand what Luke is bearing witness to. Your mention of the uh, abundance of women, Alistair, also reminds me that at the end of Mark, there are women. Uh, but the women at the end of Mark, and, and there's question about whether to take the long ending of Mark or not. But if we take the short ending, the last word in the gospel of Mark is fear. And everyone's fearful. It's quite fascinating to note that Luke begins with women and everybody is rejoicing. There's gladness, there's joy, um, and um, it's all through this, uh, this and because these are the remnant faithful who, when Gabriel comes and announces the birth of John the Baptist, um, they all know that something's up. And so, Eugene Rosenstock QC, in his the book, The Fruit of the Lips, notices connection, this keys connections between uh, the ending of the Gospels and the b- first Gospel and the beginning of the next. And I think there's something to that. Luke um, wants to show how uh, these women, uh, these early faithful women, are quite joyful at the news. Yeah, we have uh, not just a woman in general, but we have a barren woman, Elizabeth who is old and her husband is old. And that of course puts us back into a number of patriarchal stories. Abraham and Sarah uh, would be the one that would be most like it. Uh, As Alistair mentioned, it puts us back into the early chapters of Samuel with Hannah as the barren wife of Elkanah. Uh, And uh, there's, there's some connections also with the annunciation of the birth of Samson. Uh, not only do you have an angel that's coming in and making that annunciation, the angel, the angel of Yahweh in the case of Samson, here we have the angel Gabriel coming, but we also have the designation of the child to be born as a lifelong Nazarite. That's said concerning Samson. It's said concerning John here. Um, so we have this, we have these Old Testament stories that are being uh, informing what, what's happening here. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are in the position of Abraham and Sarai. Uh, John is like um, a new Isaac, a miracle child. John is also, I think, importantly, like a new Samson, who's going to be a kind of deliverer for Israel and is going to restore Israel. 
I, I wanted to uh, highlight a couple other things too that uh, you both mentioned. One is uh, Jeff, you mentioned in the last episode the, the the fact of the righteous remnant in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are the first ones that we see. Verse six of Luke one tells us that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord, which is a striking thing, maybe especially for Protestants and especially for Protestants of a certain sort, that it was possible for someone to be righteous according to the law and to be blameless in the commandments. I don't believe that it means that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth never sinned. We see some kind of mistake or error that Zechariah commits later in the story when he expresses some doubt in the in the angel's annunciation um, so they're not sinless but they're uh, 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 endeavoring to keep the commandments when they don't keep the commandments they uh, seek forgiveness they go through the proper rites in order to be cleansed from uncleanness they go through the proper rites and uh, they have the right heart attitude in seeking forgiveness for their sins. Uh, but this is this is the first couple that we see of that righteous remnant that you mentioned, Jeff, in the last episode. The other thing I want to highlight was the, the presence of Gabriel. And the, the last time we saw Gabriel in the Bible was in the uh, book of Daniel, where he's delivering prophecies to Daniel. And now the fact that Gabriel shows up, identifies himself as Gabriel to uh, Zechariah, and then later to Mary, shows that those visions that are sealed up in the book of Daniel are now becoming accomplished. As we said in last episode, what Luke is recording is the things that are fulfilled or accomplished among us. Uh, that sealed book is being unsealed and all the things that, uh, all the, the coming of the new kingdom, the new world empire that, that Daniel foresees, that's coming to fruition now with the birth of John and Jesus. And thinking back to First Samuel again, there are ways in which we might think of similarities between um, Eli and Zachariah. In both cases, there are themes of loss of sensation. So Eli goes blind, and that's a theme that's connected with the loss of um, spiritual insight, with the lack of prophecy, and with um, the going out of the lamp of God. And then on the other hand, Zachariah is struck dumb. Um, Eli can't recognize what's taking place directly in front of him. Um, here's a woman calling out to the Lord, and he thinks that she's drunk. Later on, we'll see that same sort of thing happening on the day of Pentecost. But here, Zechariah, even though he's a priest, he seems to lack um, an element of spiritual perception. And so you have a doubting man here, and then you have believing women. We have the same thing at the end of Luke with believing women and initially doubting men at the news of resurrection. And the news of resurrection and the news of birth, I think, are two things that very much go together. In relation to uh, Zechariah again, it seems like what you have here in Zechariah and what's going to be true for John the Baptist is something of a concentration of the whole uh, Old Testament priesthood so that John the Baptist is going to be the fullness of a priest. I mean, his father is a son of Aaron. His mother is a daughter of Aaron. And he's not just a priest, he's a Nazarite. So in John, it seems like all the priestly possibilities are combined. The whole priesthood uh, of the Old Testament is in full blossom in him, which is why he will be great. And 
he's great before the Lord in the right way. He will lead people to Yahweh, lead people to Yahweh's Messiah, help them come to their Redeemer, verses 16 and 17. That's what priests are supposed to do. That um, kind of restoration of the priesthood, I wonder if uh, we're supposed to see something of an uh, allusion back to, to the book of Zechariah in the scene that we're given with the Annunciation. Um, Zechariah and Zechariahs are just two different versions of the same name. Zechariah is the Greek version. Both of them mean mm-hmm. Yah remember. Yah remember. And one of the one of the visions of Zechariah is a vision of a priest in a temple, uh, Joshua, uh, standing before the Lord, and uh, and Satan is accusing him. Um, and I wonder if the we have this kind of odd detail that uh, Zechariah goes into the into the holy place. He's standing before the golden altar of incense, and he's presenting incense. Whether this is a daily offering of incense. Uh, or perhaps Day of Atonement incense. Perhaps he's performing some rite of the Day of Atonement. But in any case, he's in the temple, and the angel is not just appearing to him, but is standing to the right of the altar of incense. He's positioned within the uh, within the temple uh, at, at a particular to the to if you're if you're thinking of Zechariah's um, uh, to the to Zechariah's right um, rather than to the right of the uh, um, from the position of the altar, but that would be to the north side of the altar, and the angel of the Lord is standing there. But you have this, you have this setup that resembles the setup in Zechariah three, uh, and that whole that whole scene in Zechariah three is about the restoration of uh, a defiled priesthood. You have the catch twenty two situation of a an unclean priest who needs the temple in order to be cleansed, and a shattered temple that needs a priesthood in order to uh, be restored. And this uh, this uh, impasse is overcome when the Lord intervenes and restores uh, Joshua to his position as priest. Maybe that's uh, overly subtle, but it, your discussion of John as a culminating priesthood seemed to fit with that, and uh, with an allusion to Zechariah there. Maybe we could think about the fact that Elizabeth's name comes from Elisha, who's the wife of Aaron, and she would be the matriarch of the priestly line. I think Exodus 6 references her. Um and so the connection with the Baron Elizabeth and this new priest that's going to come forth, that's going to lead the way, who's going to go before um, Christ, that that maybe helps us to understand um, a restoration of priestly theme. And there's also a resumptive element to what Zachariah represents. He's told his name connects with one of the last of the Old Testament prophets, and then within the prophecy that's given to him, there's also an allusion to the prophecy of Malachi in verse 17, that this one who's going to be his son is going to come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, as Malachi had prophesied. And maybe in his being struck dumb until um, John is born, there may be some reference to that period of silence as well, that these expectations that will finally be fulfilled. And then as he speaks again, um, it will be a declaration of something new happening. Isn't this a fascinating window too on what would have been happening in the temple? Uh, you know, Jesus, when he cleanses the temple says my house, according uh, to Psalm 69, my house, uh, father's house ought to be a house of prayer. And here in verse 
9 and 10, you have uh, Zacharias performing his duties, and the whole multitude of the people were praying. And then it, Gabriel comes and says, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. Now, there's likely, it, it's not unlikely that uh, 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 Zechariah is praying for his barren wife, uh, and that, of course, is answered. But it seems like the multitude would have been praying for something else, hoping for something to happen, waiting for, uh, I don't know, the, the promises uh, of, of Daniel, maybe, since Gabriel's mentioned, so that in the temple, people are praying for the Lord to come, to act, to visit them, to do what he's supposed to do, and Zechariah mixing that with his prayer for his wife, and then we have this uh, declaration that, well, yeah, your son is going to be the forerunner of the one who comes to bring salvation to his people. Yeah, the uh, Elijah allusion back to Malachi is related to both of the topics that we've been discussing, the, the priesthood and the role of the temple. There's not a direct reference to Elijah in Malachi 3, but there's a reference to the messenger who is going to come, and he's going to be uh, like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, and he's going to purify the sons of Levi, and, and he's going to come to his house, and he's going to cleanse his house. Uh, chapter 4 begins with he's coming like a, burning like a furnace, uh, and the uh, Elijah's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the reference to Elijah would filter through Malachi would bring to mind this hope for a restoration of priesthood and hope for a purging of the Lord's house. But also, you know, as the, as the story develops, we know that the house is doomed. Uh, so there's a, a purging of the, the house of the Lord that will eliminate the physical temple and a new human temple will emerge from that. And those, the John as the Elisha figure is the forerunner of that whole process. In the ordering of the prophets, um, in the Old Testament, Malachi is the last, and the last words of Malachi are the verse is the verse that's spoken to Zechariah here. I think it seems to me that the gospel writers were very alert to the structure of the Old Testament as something that framed their witness to Christ. That Christ is the one who takes from the very beginning to the very end of the scriptures and brings those to their climax. He takes that point where the, as it were, the um, thread was left off and he picks that up and he resumes God's work in history. Um, you have at the very beginning of each gospel, there's some subtle allusion and sometimes a more explicit allusion back to the book of Genesis. And I think you have the same thing in Luke where he talks about from the beginning. Um, it's the weakest of the four gospels, but it's here as well. And then this reference to the end of the Old Testament, I think, is doing something similar. At the end of Matthew, you have an allusion to the last book of the Hebrew order, the end of Chronicles with the Great Commission of Cyrus. And here you have taking up that Old Testament witness and then bringing it forward in the ministry of John the Baptist. I think another thing to note about the connections that are being drawn here is bringing together themes of birth and themes of a new work of God, that's something that's common within the Old Testament, where these private themes of a couple seeking a son um, can be connected with the vast destiny of the whole people. 
And God works in these very private, domestic narratives. We'll often think about the great stage of history, someone bursting onto the stage. If we were telling the gospel stories, we'd tell it mostly like Mark. But both Matthew and Luke begin with the birth. And Luke particularly focuses upon um, people who are out of the way context, people that you wouldn't necessarily look to for hope. Um, Likewise with the story of the Exodus and the story of First Samuel both begin with women struggling in birth. And the story of the Exodus brings together the women struggling in birth and the larger state of the nation, that the nation is experiencing these birth pangs in its struggle in the womb of Egypt, and it needs to come to birth as God's firstborn son. And here I think you have a similar connection between the larger state of the people and the promise of this child that's going to be born, that he's going to be someone who brings together the domestic narrative of um, Elizabeth and Zachariah and the larger state of the people in the same way as Mary's um, child can, in her Magnificat, take up the same sort of significance that you find in the prayer of Hannah, where the birth of Samuel represents God's turning the tables on the national and international frame. And there, I think, it also helps us to get perspective on what really matters. Where are the places that God is really at work? Um, Where are the places that we should seek for his action? Not necessarily, in the first place, on the national stage. God can work in these smaller contexts to bring out his larger work. And there, I think, it's also a reminder of God's, um, the gestation of God's work, that God, the gestation of God's work can take a long time. This is 30 years before any of the other things take place, but yet God is already at work and he's preparing the way for what's going to take place later. And with that, we also have John the Baptist connects with Samuel. And Samuel is the one who prepares the way for the kingdom. He's not the first king himself, but he's preparing the way for the king. And the enunciation of Samuel's birth is something that prepares the way for David and that Davidic dynasty in the same way John prepares the way for the new David, the son of David. Right. That's a very preachable comment, Alistair, that uh, kind of an Advent theme could be uh, God begins in... God begins with a child. God's, the renewal always begins with a child in the Bible. It begins with a woman giving birth. Uh, and it's in those, you know, it's, the, it's in the weakness of God that his strength is displayed. And that would be, you know, that could make a good uh, Advent theme. Uh, John, Jeff, you were going to say? Well, and that theme would have uh, served Theopolis and the community he represents very well. Um, because what Luke draws out here is that Gabriel doesn't come to the high priest. Gabriel doesn't come to to uh, the uh, the leaders, the powerful, the influential, the wealthy. He comes to these little people. I'm thinking of Francis Schaeffer's old book, No Little People, No Little Places, um, which is very preachable. So you got Zachariah and Elizabeth. Uh, they're living in the hill country of Judah. Joseph and Mary from the ghetto uh, in Galilee and Anna and Simeon are also marginalized, and yet, as Alistair noted, if you look at the way God has worked in the past in Israel, this is consonant with that. This is 
pretty appropriate that this is the way he does things. And Theopolis, in the God-fearing Gentile community uh, ministered to by Paul and his assistants, is experiencing that because from the uh, center of uh, from Jerusalem is only coming, you know, wickedness and hatred and violence. Um, and he's wondering about that. Well, what, what, what am I to do? Well, this is the way God has always worked, Theopolis, and you God-fearing Gentiles. So you need to recognize, um, recognize that and believe it. I want to go back uh, briefly before we conclude to uh, uh, combine the Malachi with the muteness of Zechariah's. Um, We've seen the connection with Malachi. There's a quotation from Malachi concerning Elijah. John is going to be Elijah. But um, we also have a link with the priest who cannot speak back to Malachi 2, which says, The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. Men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he, he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest is supposed to be the one that communicates uh, God's will to the people. And this priest is being muted because of an unbelieving response. If, if anything should be clear from a knowledge of the Old Testament, it's that God can open up aging and barren wombs. He can bring life from the dead. Uh, that's the very thing that has been announced to Zacharias, and it's the thing that he doubts. I mean, this is the origin of Israel's whole history, that uh, they started from a barren womb. They're all children of a barren womb, and how can he not know that God is able to do this? And so he's silence at least for a time and then as Alistair pointed out his at the birth of John he begins to speak in his he begins to speak in in a priestly capacity in a sense uh, and his people can seek instructions from his lips and I also wonder if we should connect that silence to I, I think of Isaiah 6 and other passages in Isaiah that talk about the result of Israel's idolatry being a loss of sensory capacity they can't hear they can't see they can't speak they become like the idols that they worship. And although uh, we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful, but he's also representing the people as priest, and perhaps his muteness is a sign of Israel's unfaithfulness. And the Lord, uh, Alistair said that this is kind of a symbol of the period of silence now extended after this annunciation to Zechariah and symbolized by that annunciation. And it's also, it's a manifestation or embodiment of Israel's unfaithfulness, even in this faithful priest. I think we should remember that Advent is a season in the church here, and the church is the house of prayer, so that even though we're looking at these events, these uh, stories that precede the birth of Jesus and Luke, Advent is not about us uh, kind of pretending to live beforehand and praying for Jesus to be born. Uh, Advent is about uh, praying for the Lord to come to us in many ways, but uh, especially in deliverance, because he has been faithful to his promise in the past. And so uh, the church prays not for the birth of Jesus and doesn't just celebrate the birthday of Jesus. The church prays for the Lord to come as he has been faithful in the past. And Luke, within his gospel and within the book of Acts, foregrounds that theme of prayer in a way that the other gospels or the synoptic gospels don't so at the key moments of jesus ministry and his baptism in the transfiguration and at other points jesus is seen to be in prayer and here i think you have something similar it's the hour of incense it's in association with the prayers of zachariah and his wife and you'll later on see 
the prayers of people like Anna and Simeon, and then as the disciples after the um, ascension, they give themselves to prayer nonstop within the temple. And that's the context in which the events of Pentecost occur. There is already being set up here, like we see at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the context of expectation, prayer, calling upon the Lord. And it's in that context that God works. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.